I next met with Dr. Brian Rainey and reviewed with him a National Patterns of Care study we just completed with 100 U.S.-based medical oncologists and the 12 faculty participating in this project. The results of the survey are presented in the enclosed monograph and on researchtopractice.com. To begin, we chatted about a case scenario in the survey of a 73-year-old patient who presented with a primary renal cell cancer and metastatic disease. In both scenarios, the primary was asymptomatic. However, in the first case, the metastatic disease was asymptomatic. But in the second scenario, the patient had significant symptomatology from the metastases. For the first patient, if somebody's truly asymptomatic, then I would tend to observe that person, realizing that although we have several active therapies for kidney cancer, we have no curative therapies. So if somebody's truly asymptomatic, I think more and more our practice would be to observe that patient, at least for an initial period. I think if they progress radiographically or certainly symptomatically over three, six, nine months or whatever, then we would certainly treat that patient with systemic therapy. What are the variables that go into deciding whether or not to do that? And one I'd ask about would be age. This man's 73. Suppose he'd been 53. Yeah, I think age is a factor in that determination. I don't think it's a huge factor, honestly. Certainly with younger patients, we're going to tend towards more aggressive therapy or tend towards a quicker intervention. But 73, I mean, their life expectancy is probably 8 or 10 years without kidney cancer. So it's certainly not that they're limited And I wouldn't think about applying observation in somebody who's too sick to get treatment. I think that's a different scenario. This person's well enough to get treatment. I just don't think that they need it right away. Now, when you've utilized this strategy, what's been sort of the overall, you know, kind of like a waterfall plot kind of thing in terms of how does it break out in terms of your own experience of how long you've been able to wait? What's sort of the high end, the low end, and the median? Yeah, it's a relatively new experience. I would say there's only probably... 10 to 15% of patients who I think even qualify for this approach. So it's not a huge number. Either they have more of a bulk of disease, they have symptomatic disease. Sometimes you do actually have a couple scans to look at, say, pre- and post-nephrectomy, although not in this case, and you see their disease is moving. So I think it's only a fraction of patients. We actually at Cleveland Clinic have a prospective trial looking at this where we're starting to take patients exactly like this and say, gee, let's watch you for a while and see what the growth rate is and what's our trigger to treat. And when we treat you, how is your response to the agents, which we would expect to be the same as if we hadn't waited. So I don't know. My sense is that most people probably could wait in the six to nine month range. But I'm guessing at that number because we just don't have enough experience yet. I mean, have you had any patients where you could wait a couple years or you just don't know yet? We've only had the trial ongoing for a while. I mean, we all have our own retrospective experience, but you know, we certainly remember the notable cases And I've certainly had patients where I watched them for a couple of years. But I don't think that's the median. Again, I think we tend to remember those dramatic cases. I think there's a number of different issues there. So the average size of a renal primary in somebody with METS is only 8 or 9 centimeters, which actually in the kidney is very small. In the colon, that would be large. But in the kidney, I would say most are asymptomatic. And I would take out of there microscopic hematuria or, or, you know, small symptoms, so to speak. I'd say most are asymptomatic. There are randomized data in kidney cancer to support removal of the primary. So I'm in favor of removal of the primary in general in appropriately selected patients because there's randomized data to support it, not because I think they're going to get symptomatic down the road or it's going to cause some sort of renal problem per se. That was another thing I wanted to ask you about. If you could go through that randomized study, what it looked at and whether you think it's still relevant today with new agents on board. 
Yeah, so this is a really important question for the field that I think you can get a lot of different opinions on. So the trials, which were conducted over the 90s, one U.S., one European, randomized a total of about 330 patients to nephrectomy or not, followed by low-dose interferon, which was the community standard of care at the time. There was no significant difference in response rate to interferon, but there was a very large difference in overall survival. In the combined analysis, it was nearly six months favoring the nephrectomy arm which was more of a survival difference than we've seen in any other trial in kidney cancer before or since. Although I look at that and I say, well, you know, now we've got certainly first-line therapy that's way more effective, I think, than interferon. So does this really apply now? Well, that may be the case, but it's not the case that the surgery made interferon more or less effective. I think those were separate treatment, anti-tumor effects. So there's the anti-tumor effect of removing the primary And you could argue that in those trials, interferon, which is minimally effective, was really not a factor. Number one, the response rate didn't differ. And again, overall, maybe 10 or 15% of patients benefit. So you could almost say it was nephrectomy or not, you know, followed by no therapy. So that's one effect. The effect of systemic therapy is a separate effect. And as you point out, clearly much more robust now, not just with frontline therapy, but with second, third, and fourth line therapy. So I view them as separate effects. Now, you were part of a study that was reported in the Journal of Urology looking at the issue of resection of renal cell after targeted therapy. So if you have a patient who, you know, is thought to be deemed, let's say, appropriate for sunitinib because the primary is unrespectable, maybe the METs are symptomatic, but then at some later point in time, the patient does need a nephrectomy. Can you talk about what you all found there? So that was a retrospective experience. As you mentioned, patients with large in general, subjectively unresectable primaries who went on systemic therapy and had such a great response that, you know, we were sitting there 12, 18, 24 months later thinking, gee, now we can take this patient to therapy and remove the bulk of their disease. So I don't think we know yet. I'm not sure that we know how to optimally apply or maybe optimally time surgery in those cases. I'm sure that we don't know. What I would say is that, you know, I think it shows that you can do it safely. You can take patients safely to surgery after targeted therapy And also that we shouldn't forget that the curative therapy for kidney cancer, metastatic or otherwise, is surgical. So if you get patients to a point where they can be consolidated with surgery, it at least needs to be in your thought process. How much difference does it make from a morbidity and people getting out of the hospital point of view to be able to do it laparoscopically? And what seems to be the general guidelines in terms of whether it can be done laparoscopically? Those are probably more questions for a surgeon, but I don't, you know, in our series, most of those were open. I think all but maybe three were open surgery simply because of the advanced nature of their disease. MD Anderson also has a large retrospective experience in about, I believe, 40 or 50 patients, more with bevacizumab-based therapy and then surgery. I don't know the breakdown of open versus laparoscopic in their case. I don't think with today's techniques and the skill of the surgeon that that would make much of a difference. Now, the paper that you reported had 19 patients in it. It was a little hard for me to really get a feel for how much of a problem. I guess these people primarily got sunitinib? Correct. You reported a number of complications, but it was just kind of tough to get a feel about that. What did you come away thinking about in terms of specific, you know, VEGF kind of issues, wound healing, et cetera? I mean, it's a small retrospective experience, so for what it's worth, I don't think that we had the impression that there were any more surgical complications than we would have expected. The MD Anderson series I mentioned did find significantly greater superficial wound healing than patients who went straight to debulking nephrectomy and did not find any other surgical issues. 
So I think there are considerations, you know, when using these agents in the preoperative setting, but they're not insurmountable. There's been a lot of discussion about time between bevacizumab in surgery, colon cancer particularly, you know, kind of a four to six week window a lot of people are using. What do we know about the VEGF TKI, specifically sunitinib in wound healing? Well, we certainly know that the half-life is much shorter than bevacizumab because they're small molecules, quite obviously. And so our general practice is to keep people off therapy seven days before surgery. You know, the half-life of sunitinib and its metabolite is approximately 40 hours. So that should be plenty of time for patients to be off therapy. And in fact, sometimes it's shorter than that, and we've not really experienced major problems. I mean, is there evidence that the TKIs inhibit wound healing? I don't know that there's direct clinical evidence. Again, that MD Anderson series was mostly bevacizumab almost exclusively. I would infer it based on that they inhibit angiogenesis. I'm not aware of clinical evidence, certainly not in kidney cancer that's shown it, but I assume that that's the case. I see that you were involved in a couple of papers at ASCO. One, association of percent of tumor burden removed with debulking nephrectomy mm-hmm. and progression-free survival. That seemed interesting. And the other, association with tumor burden characteristics and outcome of patients with metastatic renal cell. Can you talk about what you all looked at in those two papers? Sure, sure. Those are two really very different projects, although they both involve tumor burden. The first gets at the issue we talked about of debulking nephrectomy, and it was really our attempt to retrospectively look at our practice of debulking nephrectomy in the modern era of patients who went on to receive targeted therapy, largely sunitinib mostly to say what factors are important when selecting patients for debulking nephrectomy. What we found, not surprisingly, as been shown in the cytokine era, was that patients who have a larger percentage of their total tumor burden removed at the time of nephrectomy do better. So if you have a very large primary and a small burden of metastatic disease, you can expect to do better than having a 3-centimeter primary and a total of 15 centimeters of disease elsewhere. And that, to me, sort of makes intuitive, you know, clinical common sense. But we wanted to look at it and look at other factors that might be important. It doesn't prove that debulking nephrectomy is beneficial in the era of targeted therapy, but to me it says that if you're going to undertake that approach, patient selection is still vital. I thought it was really interesting. You used sort of a volumetric approach to this? These were just resist measurements. So it wasn't volume as in... I see. So you just added it all up. So it was just as we would measure tumors normally with resist, say on a clinical trial, we just took the largest diameter of the primary tumor divided by the total tumor burden as our measure of fractional percentage of tumor volume removed. The term volume may be a little misleading there. Probably tumor burden might be a better term. I thought it was really interesting. And I was trying to think if there was any other example that I could think of in oncology with a similar kind of... Thing. Again, I guess if you have a colon cancer, you don't think about it volumetrically. But yet in the think tank, the investigators brought that issue up. I got the feeling it was a clinical thing they had thought through before. The patient with low volume primary, high volume met, as opposed to big primary and low volume asymptomatic met. Well, I think kidney cancer is unique in that there aren't many tumors, colon cancer being an exception, where you think about removing the primary, even in the face of metastatic disease. You know, again, I'm not aware of too many others where that's really the prevailing paradigm. So it's a little bit unique to think about it that way and think about which patients are most appropriate. Just to finish out on these two cases, one, the patient who was asymptomatic, and I noticed that when you filled out your form, you actually voted for observing the patient. And I was curious, based on seeing patients who've been treated in the community, giving talks, et cetera, 
whether you think this concept of maybe observing patients expectantly with metastatic disease has actually gotten out to the community. I think one of the reasons we started our prospective trial is because the four or five docs that see kidney cancer at the clinic all had a handful of these patients in our practice. And everywhere I go and bring up this concept, people say, yeah, you know, they all have a story. I have a guy who's been out two years, or gee, I have a handful of patients. And in the U.S. and worldwide, I've experienced that talking to physicians. So the concept was born out of clinical practice. And so I think it's out there. The reason we did a trial was to prospectively define it, to follow people at regular and pre-specified intervals and say, what exactly is the growth rate? What happens if you wait? There likely could be certain patients who have bad outcomes. Maybe there's a subset of patients in whom, even if apparently indolent, we shouldn't wait. And then to me, the critical question is, what happens when you start these people on therapy? Do they respond the same as if you had started them on day one? Which I assume is the case, but again, has not really been carefully studied. And it was interesting, in this particular case where you would have managed the patient, exactly zero out of our 100 oncologists (laughs) would do the same thing. Right, I noticed that. I think having had so much experience in using these agents and seeing a lot of patients, I sense that sort of a comfort level, that I've seen enough patients on therapy and have side effects. I think I understand the limitations of therapy. As wonderful as I think these agents are, I understand that they're not curative and that there probably is a subset of patients, albeit small, where perhaps deferred therapy, if you will, is a better strategy. And it's interesting, too, in terms of what they actually would recommend for a patient like that, 50% would recommend as the first maneuver to remove the primary, 48% would start with sunitinib. So if you think about it, patient you know, goes to one doc and gets sunitinib. Another doc gets surgery and goes to you and gets you know, expectant observation. Right. Pretty interesting difference. Right. And I'm not sure there's one right answer here. I mean, you know, my opinion would be at least an initial period of observation is reasonable. If this is truly a small lesion and it doesn't give a size, but if it's, let's say, for the sake of argument, a three-centimeter lesion, it's hard for me to believe that taking that out is going to benefit the patient. And so I'd rather give them systemic therapy when warranted. If all their metastatic disease shrivels up, you know, then going back in and removing the primary makes more sense to me. And we've also, again, been experimenting in a variety of tumors when we try to ask investigators and docs, okay, what's your general approach? We also are asking them more and more, okay, well, you think you would generally like to do this in this situation, but what do you think about this other option? Is it a reasonable option or really something that you wouldn't recommend? And we kind of fantasize about a patient who's coming for a second opinion. The doc gives the second opinion, but yet there's a first opinion that was different, and the Mm -hmm. patient wants to know, well, is this something you really think I shouldn't do what the first doc said, or it's okay but not your preference? And I noticed that in terms of, again, this, you know, you were among the majority who also felt that both removal of the primary and starting the patient on sunitinib would be, even though not your option, reasonable. It's kind of like, you know, that it would be an evidence-based alternative that would be a consideration. We've been doing this, too, because trying to get more into the edges of these decisions. And the NCCN guidelines are fabulous, but Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily tease out, you know, these kinds of things. So I take it in this kind of a situation, really, this data suggests exactly what you say, that there are a number of acceptable options. I think so. I mean, I think this is one of those sort of down-the-middle cases where there's data, really, to defend any of these options. I guess observation would be the one with the least amount of data and more relying on clinical experience. Right. The next issue that we wanted to get into, 
We have a patient who has a T3A, N0, M0 lesion. And we wanted to ask people what they thought about adjuvant therapy. A, going into the major trial, bringing that up to the patient, the serafinib, sunitinib, placebo trial, and B, treating with uh, systemic therapy off-study. And I see that A, not too surprisingly, you're similar to actually not just the investigators, but also the oncologists and being supportive of a patient like this going in the study. What's your experience when you present this trial to patients like this in terms of how they receive it? Well, I think usually when I'm seeing a patient who is status post-surgery without obvious metastatic disease, I usually tell them that there are two questions to ask. One is, what is my risk of recurrence? And two is, what can I do to lower that risk? And so based largely on stage and grade, I give them you know, my estimate of what their risk of recurrence is in a broad category. You know, this is a pathologic T3A patient, so they have a high risk of recurrence, probably 50% as a ballpark, which to me is pretty high, especially for a 57-year-old who presumably is otherwise healthy. And then I say, what can we do to lower that risk? And I say, the short answer is nothing, that there's absolutely nothing that's ever been proven to systematically lower that risk. Then I'll launch into a discussion about the clinical trial saying, you know, we have these new drugs in the advanced setting. We're starting to study them earlier in disease. They may or may not lower risk and and sort of go into the details. I generally, you know, while we certainly offer the trial to anybody who's eligible, I think my enthusiasm is much more for a younger patient with T3 and or node positive disease than it is for somebody with, say, a six centimeter renal mass that might be barely on the fringes of being eligible from a risk perspective. Because again, you realize if you give enough patients these drugs that there are side effects that can be life-altering, especially in an asymptomatic patient. So I think the risk-benefit is different for different patients, quite obviously. You know, we're generally supportive, again, in these high-risk patients. And it seems like the practicing oncologist, the answers were pretty much identical. How much of a, let's say, risk reduction do you think you would need to see to justify using a year of one of these agents? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think every doctor and every patient probably has a different number in their head. I think the adjuvant trials need to show that more patients are cured. If we're just delaying recurrence by six or eight months, I don't think that's worth a year of therapy for almost anybody. If there's an extra, say, 10% of people who are cured with this maneuver as opposed to no therapy, to me that seems like a reasonable number and i don't know whether it should be 6 or 7% or 13 or something but 10 sort of seems like some reasonably ballpark number of a minimum estimate of benefit do you think the concept of relative risk reduction is going to apply here in other words if you see it this trial and it turns out they have x sort of baseline risk and it's reduced 50% that you'll be able to apply that across the spectrum I think the biology of kidney cancer is such that the relative risk reduction will be consistent across risk groups. That would be my guess because von Hippel-Lindau gene inactivation is an early event. So even six centimeter tumors have that same underlying biology. So if the drugs have an effect, my guess, you know, a priority would be that that effect would be consistent across subgroups. When you think about the scientific evidence available, what are the arguments that it will be effective versus the arguments that it won't be effective? Well, I think the arguments that it will, again, are that you know the biology of kidney cancer is fairly uniform. The reason all these drugs have such great effects in the metastatic setting is because nearly all tumors have VHL inactivation. They're VEGF-driven. It's a hugely important pathway to state the obvious in treatment of this disease. And so you know, these drugs are like nothing we've seen in the metastatic setting. So if anything is going to crack the barrier in the adjuvant setting, which we haven't so far, it's going to be these drugs. 
the thing that gives me caution is that the process of angiogenesis may very well be completely different in the adjuvant setting versus the established metastatic setting. The recent CO8 results in colon cancer, to me, were perhaps a cautionary tale that even though we have a drug that clearly extends survival in the metastatic setting, that in the adjuvant setting, while there may have been some effect during the treatment period, it quickly disappeared. And I'm afraid that we may see that in kidney cancer. That would be my biggest concern. You know, I've been asking, obviously, a lot of people about that CO8 study. And I mean, to me, maybe it's just I like Norm Walmart or something. But I thought, you know, having a 40% reduction in recurrence while the treatment was on board was maybe an important biologic clue, not necessarily practical that we mm-hmm. want to give people bevacizumab for two or three years, but just that we maybe can disturb the natural history of the disease. I agree with you. I mean, I think it clearly shows that the process of angiogenesis is important in the propagation of metastases, the going from the micro to the macro metastatic, let's say. But again, the clinical application then falls short because you can't give people these drugs forever. Going back to my point, unless you can cure more people, unless you can somehow eradicate tumor cells forever, I think the benefits will be questionable. I would guess that you could probably tell for a lot of patients who are on active drug for that study that they are on active drug. Yes, maybe you can make the wrong guess, but when you do see people are having problems in the adjuvant setting, what kinds of problems and how easy or difficult do you think, or what fraction of patients you think can actually get through a year? So I think they experience the same kind of toxicities as the metastatic patients, diarrhea and hand foot syndrome, fatigue, et cetera. I agree with you. I think with any experience, you can tell who's getting placebo because <laughs> they have absolutely no side effects. Placebo doesn't cause hand foot or hypertension or diarrhea. It might cause, you know, there might be fatigue that a patient has like we all do, but I think it's pretty clear who's getting drug, although again, the specific drug might be in question. How many patients can make it through a year, I think, is really a critical question. Our own experience is that it's hard to get people through a year when they have no symptoms to start with, they have no abnormalities to deal with, they may not have cancer in their body, and so I think their motivation level, while high at the beginning, goes down over time. And a year is a pretty long time to be taking pills twice a day and doctor visits and potential side effects, et cetera. So I think, and I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is the median time on therapy will be much less than a year at the end of the day for all the trials that are ongoing. And again, you know, we're just going to have to wait to get the answer. But let's just say, since I feel real optimistic today for some reason, that we see a trastuzumabian type effect here, 50% reduction in recurrence, you know, that seems to persist, survival benefit. If you saw those types of numbers, how low do you think the risk would have to be in order to justify trying treatment? I mean, if it's truly a magnitude of benefit that's in that ballpark, then I think pretty much everybody's going to get the drug or drugs. Even somebody with a 10% risk would love to lower it to 5%. Now, you have to treat a lot of people, you know, perhaps to realize that benefit, but I think the practical application will be that most people will get it. I will say that I don't think it's going to be that clear cut, and I think identification and validation of predictive biomarkers in this setting will be of huge importance to the field. Any biomarkers or clinical indicators such as hypertension related to some of your work that you think might have the potential to play out here? Yeah, I mean, as you know, we've looked at hypertension as a biomarker for axitinib, not just in kidney cancer, but across diseases. And I think we see an interesting signal there with the understanding that it's a retrospective study with all the limitations and caveats. We're also looking at some of the hypertension parameters with sunitinib, 
and submitted some data for the Kidney Cancer Association meeting in the fall. And as you know, there's data with bevacizumab in breast cancer to a similar effect from the E2100 trial. So I think we're starting to see the emergence of a theme here that whatever the characteristics of the host and or tumor are that lead to hypertension are linked somehow with the anti-tumor effect of this approach. I don't think we at all understand mechanism. And also the one downside is that you don't know whether somebody's going to be hypertensive on drug until you actually give them the drug. Although in the Exitinib series, most patients developed hypertension at an early time point, four to six weeks. So you didn't have to give them three months to decide to see if they were hypertensive. It's not something where we can analyze a tumor or a patient a priori and say, you should get drug and you shouldn't. Those small molecule inhibitors have different potency against the VEGF receptor. And they also have a different spectrum of kinases, which they inhibit. And if you try to look at all the published data, it's very difficult because different groups reporting, different assays, different thresholds. And so comparative numbers are a little hard to come by. But with that caveat, axitinib appears to be the most potent and the most selective against the VEGF receptor. And my belief is that the clinical effects of a drug in kidney cancer are related to how potent it is against the VEGF receptor. Selectivity, I think, is probably a second consideration, and nobody knows how these off-target effects might have. They certainly have bad effects in terms of toxicity. I'm not quite sure that we have a handle on their potential beneficial effects. So they are different drugs, and that's somewhat evident in that we can give sunitinib and then give serafinib and see some effect. Now, we generally see less effect in the second line or later setting, but if they were absolutely identical drugs, we probably would expect not to see much. But we do see pretty robust clinical effects with sequence therapy. What do we know about the side effects profile of these agents? With pizopinib, they were talking about the hope and the perception that things like fatigue and other symptoms might be better than with sunitinib. What do you think about that, and where do you think exitinib fits in? So, I mean, the thing that was most intriguing to me about the pizopinib data was not the efficacy, which I thought was very much in the ballpark of sunitinib, but that the hand-foot syndrome incidence was only 6%, I believe, and that was all grades. So, you know, for some of these Me Too drugs to make a difference, they have to be at least as good. But I think if they have substantially reduced toxicity, I think they really are of benefit because those are the things that bother patients. You know, hand foot syndrome, diarrhea, those are very bothersome to patients that limit their quality of life. So if that bears out and there's a randomized trial ongoing compared to sunitinib, then I think that would be a potentially major advance. What about axitinib? Axitinib, I think, is more sunitinib-like in its side effect profile. More hypertension seems to be the most hypertension-producing, again, perhaps because of potency against VEGF, and probably a little more diarrhea. Sunitinib probably has a little more hand-foot syndrome fatigue. On a list, they would look similar, but the relative percentages, I think, vary a little bit. When you talk about looking at agents in terms of how much they actually inhibit the VEGF receptor, Are you referring to the effect on normal cells and stroma or tumor cells or both? Well, I guess I think both, but more referring to the endothelial cells. Most of the assays are done in sort of endothelial cell or endothelial cell-like assays. I don't think we have a good handle in kidney cancer on the direct effects on tumor cells. Been reports about how much VEGF receptor is expressed on tumor cells, but I think there's some skepticism about the methodology used to derive that information, and I don't have a good handle on the direct anti-tumor effect of these agents, although I will say that clinically, there's so much clinical effect, I find it hard to believe that it's all affecting endothelial cells. 
You know, another sort of related concept, at least in my mind as I've been listening to people, is something that I only recently started to hear about. And we actually asked the question in this survey about that, which is to what extent people believe that there's a relationship between, quote, being able to get the dose in of VEGF, TKI, and benefit. It kind of reminds me a little bit about some of the chemotherapy type of thinking that we've had in the past, testicular cancer, whatever, Mm -hmm. to try to push to get the dose in. And I started to hear that at that think tank, and I thought it was really interesting. And I know in the survey, you sort of were in between about that. What evidence do we have about that? And if that is true, could it mean that an agent that just has a better tolerability profile might end up having greater efficacy just because the patients end up getting more of it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's retrospective data with sunitinib that was recently published. It was presented at ASCO a few years ago and recently published about correlation between objective response and progression-free survival and the steady-state concentrations of sunitinib. So I think based on that data, most people believe that there is some correlation. Now, it's not a perfect correlation, and it's really only one data set. There was a similar analysis done with axitinib at ASCO this year that focused mostly on blood pressure, but also then looked at the PKs of axitinib and found the same thing, and the curves looked very similar to the sunitinib curve. So that's probably why I'm in the middle, where there is some supportive data. It's mostly retrospective. It's not across all drugs. But clinical practice would dictate that you know patients aren't taking the drug. They're not going to benefit And so I think some of the cases sort of got to this, and how do we dose modify? And it seemed to me that most of the clinical investigators tended to push the dose more, whereas most of the practicing oncologists tended to dose reduce more. That was my general take of the numbers. And a lot of that, frankly, may just be, you know, the experience that we have with the agents and, frankly, our nurses have. So we have very educated nurses who know more about the side effects than anybody. And so we're more willing to push the dose because we have that backup. We have that nursing backup. In this project, one of the things that we're trying to look at is, well, what are some of these numbers that we want to see change? Are there people out there doing things that maybe we want to give them some feedback on? The first number that jumped out at me in this survey was the fact in that case that you just described where you know you would recommend going on the study and would not treat off-study, 29% of oncologists would use sunitinib off-study for adjuvant therapy. So, yeah, if there's a message to get out, I've never treated a single patient off study in the adjuvant setting. There's not a single study that would suggest any benefit. And again, having given the drug to enough people, you realize that there can be significant toxicity. We also don't know what effect that might have if they do recur on the biology of response in the metastatic setting. So I couldn't state more strongly that I don't believe in treating people off trial in the adjuvant setting in kidney cancer. Again, every single trial has been flatly negative. In fact, if you look at some of the high-dose 2 trials, the observation arms numerically did better. wasn't statistically significant, but they numerically did better in terms of disease-free and overall survival. And so I don't see any rationale. Sometimes I'll have patients come to me wanting something. But I think once you explain the concept of risk-benefit to patients, I've never really had a patient challenge me on that. I mean, if I explain that the benefit is, in essence, proven to be zero, then all we're doing is exposing them to risk. Reinforcing this even more is in addition to those 29% who would actually do it, there was another 45% that, although they wouldn't recommend it, would be okay with it. And again, we didn't see that in the investigators, and I see that you checked that you wouldn't be okay with treating off-study too. No, it looked like, yeah, none of the investigators would be okay with it. 
And I think maybe only one out of eight said not my preference, but acceptable. Right, right. I think also oncologists are hearing different things in different tumor types. In breast cancer, there was a talk Joe Ragaz gave in San Antonio a couple years ago where he said, well, we're moving too slowly to bring things in off study, you know, that we should have started to use maybe trastuzumab even before the trials were out. It was a very controversial talk. But I guess there's a certain philosophy involved in terms of, you know, what kind of evidence you need in order to move forward. One of the things we asked in one of these cases here, and I know it may be a little bit different based on obviously whether they're responding or not, but is the patient who started on regular dose of sunitinib, 50 milligrams a day, four weeks on, two weeks off, and then starts having problems. So one of the problems we threw out there was fatigue that was immobilizing the patient for 10 days every cycle. And so we asked people, you know, what would you generally do? Most of the investigators, including you, based on that, would decrease the dose right then and there. How much fatigue does it take you to want to do something in this situation? And what are the variables that determine at the think tank we heard about going to two weeks on, one week off schedule, for example? Yeah, I think this is a case and a question set that could have multiple answers. I mean, you know, as I think about it, grade three fatigue, which is interfering with activities of daily living, is generally the trigger to do something and everybody's different. For some people, it's right away. For some people, it's just the last couple days. And I think where it occurs in the cycle and how long and how bad influences my response to it. Depending on when this patient presented, if they were already scheduled to have 10 days off, then I would just give them their time off, assuming they recovered, start them at 37.5. If it's day 20 and they present, then I certainly would hold until they recover. So it kind of depends on when they presented, which isn't really part of the case per se. The real question is, do you dose reduce or do you change the schedule? If this is a patient who was fine up until the last 10 days, then I think modifying the schedule makes sense, even though we're off into uncharted territory in terms of data. So three weeks on, one week off, three weeks on, two weeks off. I think as you use the drug more and more, you realize whatever works for patients is the right answer. I pretty much start everybody at 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. Some people I'll actually give them four 12 and a half milligram tablets with the anticipation that this is somebody who's probably going to need dose reduced, and that way I don't have to get them a new prescription and a new copay, and that's just a practical trick to doing that. But I think it just depends on the specifics of the patient's circumstance. So if you have interest in trying to, quote, get more of the agent in, I guess by doing two weeks on, one week off, you're still getting kind of the same total dose over six weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say I have a number of patients who have actually even just done that on their own, and then they come in and tell me about it, or you know, we make a modification like that and it really works. And it's amazing how different people are in terms of what they need, so to speak, in terms of dose and schedule. What about just using a daily dosage? Well, I think that's an important question. There's this renal effect trial, which is a study of about, I think, 250, 280 patients randomizing continuous and intermittent dosing. My understanding is the data should be available by ASCO next year. I think will be really important because we do a lot of this dose and schedule modification, but as I mentioned, not with a lot of solid data to back us up. I guess what I'm hoping that trial shows, perhaps, is that there really is no difference, but that maybe one has a better side effect profile, or even if one doesn't, it at least gives you the flexibility to say, okay, I can switch or use alternative dosing regimens and I'm not sacrificing efficacy. We have a long way to go in terms of individualizing treatment. We have a lot of different treatments now, but we really don't know how to optimally apply them. What about bevacizumab, which just got approved? I'm not sure I see that much interest in investigators in Bev or Bev Interferon. 
Yeah, so this is a tricky topic. I think the diminished enthusiasm has to do with the interferon being part of the regimen. U.S. oncologists certainly have never been excited about giving interferon, certainly for kidney cancer. I think it has to do with the timing. You know, had the data come out, had it been the first data to come out, it would have been much more exciting, but three or four drugs were FDA approved before then and had come out with their own exciting data. So I think being the fifth regimen diminished the excitement level. Bevacizumab monotherapy has certainly data to support its use in kidney cancer, although not the highest level of evidence. But as you say, I mean, it would be the most well-tolerated as monotherapy. So I think what we have to figure out over the next year or two, and unfortunately there may not be trials to guide us, is how do we incorporate this regimen? How much interferon is needed? You know, can you just use the interferon for some period of time and then stop and use bevacizumab monotherapy based on risk-benefit? Is it best initial therapy for some patients or subsequent therapy for others? I think we don't really know yet. This issue of the patient with poor risk disease, Now, the patient we presented, 75-year-old, who two years ago had a nephrectomy, now has a pathologic fracture, pathology, clear cell, bone mets, three lesions in the liver, three in the lung, and a small mass in the kidney, suspicious of a new primary lesion. Patient has pain, is requiring narcotics, losing weight, anemic, performance status 70. Does this patient fit into the category of poor risk? Well, they actually don't. I mean, because they only have two of the five risk factors, performance status and anemia. We're not given LDH and calcium, but presumably they're not abnormal. And their time from diagnosis to metastatic disease was two years. So they have two of the five memorial, which would make them intermediate risk. In the Temsorolimus trial, they added a sixth number of metastatic sites, more than three metastatic sites. So this person has bone, liver, and lungs. So they're not poor risk by memorial criteria, although they would have fit into the modified trial criteria, which is, I think, why most of the investigators answered Temsorolimus, because it's the most data-driven answer. But in the community, it was split 50-50, in essence, between sunitinib and Temsorolimus, I think reflecting more the clinical practice and the comfort level with sunitinib, probably not as much comfort level with Temsorolimus. Totally. And do you think that people are going to, at some point, start to substitute Everolimus in situations like this, particularly because it's oral? I suppose they will. I mean, there's absolutely no data to support it, although I agree those drugs seem to be very similar, at least biochemically. You know, it's not really been studied in the frontline setting in any sort of robust fashion. It's not been studied in poor risk specifically. There didn't appear to be a risk group difference in the Everolimus phase three trial. So, You may be right, it may happen, but I'm not aware of any data that would support it. I always thought it was a little bit strange, and I guess it was just sort of the way the trials were done, that people started to think about Temsorolinus with the poor-risk patient. Is there a biologic reason to think that it might work better in that situation than, for example, sunitinib? I don't think so, not that I'm aware of. I mean, the decision to study that drug in poor-risk in the Phase three setting was made on the basis of a post-hoc retrospective subset analysis, which is about as weak of a reason as any to choose it. Now, they were borne out in the fact that the trial was positive, but we certainly don't know how that trial would have turned out had they included more intermediate risk or even good risk, et cetera. So all we know is the trial was positive in the group enrolled, and it doesn't give us much more data to go on. Having said that, having used this drug and Everolimus now in these poor-risk patients, whether poor-risk by memorial, by trial criteria, or just sort of the performance status poor-risk, if you know what I mean, using that as the primary indicator. We certainly can see clinical effect in these patients that I don't think I would have expected. 
So I think there probably is something about the biology. I just don't think we know what it is. So does that mean if this case had been tweaked a little bit so that it was clearly a poor risk, you would have then said, yeah, I'll use temsorolinus? I probably would have leaned that way, although I have to say in this setting, I tend to be more like the practicing oncologist, and I tend to use sunitinib. And again, I think that's familiarity with the drug, having seen its robust effects, even in poor risk patients, again, although they don't have a separate phase three, quite obviously, so, and also patient preference. You know, patients prefer oral drugs to IV, so a lot of times that's what drives the final decision. Right. You mentioned the issue about temsorolinus and maybe, and this is what we've heard when we actually talk to docs in practice, that a lot of them are just kind of a little bit leery about it because they haven't used it very much. And it was interesting, too, when we asked them about side effects associated with the mTOR inhibitors that, for example, hyperglycemia, only 60% of oncologists, hypercholesteremia, 56%, only 39% were aware of the non-infective pulmonary you know, hypersensitivity, mm-hmm. pneumonitis. Anything you want to say about those kinds of issues and what you've seen in your own practice? I mean, I think the toxicity as reported in the phase three trial, both for temsorolimus and everolimus, reflects clinical practice, I think. The side effect profiles of these agents are relatively discrete in terms of the common things. I don't think they're you know, certainly more toxic than any of the other classes than the VEGF class. I think in general they're well tolerated, and I think, as you say, it's just a matter of gaining experience. So I guess I would encourage people to use them when appropriate and gain experience because they clearly are part of our armamentarium against the disease, and exactly how they fit in and sequence and how to use them remains to be defined, but they clearly have anti-tumor effect. In terms of the metabolic problems, how often are they actually clinically relevant, particularly in the situation of metastatic disease? Not very often. I mean, we measure it at baseline. We tend to measure it about every four weeks. And when we see them bump up, which they always do if, if they're on therapy for any length of time, you know, we simply treat them with an appropriate agent. And I've never stopped somebody or dose modified because of them. What about the interstitial or, I guess, hypersensitive pneumonitis? What's the usual clinical scenario? When does it start? What kinds of symptoms and signs? And what do you do about it? So my greatest experience in this regard is probably with temsorolimus, and I tend to find that it occurs really only after many months of therapy. It might be a dry cough, might be a, an x-ray change that when you really probe the patient, they say, yeah, now that you mention it, I have had this little cough you know, for the last few weeks. Depending on their response, we may keep treating. We may hold a few doses and sort of see what happens symptomatically. We have started patients on steroids, and I have stopped patients because of this with temsorolimus. But again, those tended to be longer-term patients. I don't have as much experience with everolimus. We've started to use it in the compassionate access program and now prescription drug. We have seen it in patients. We've seen it earlier on with that drug, although again, we're just sort of comparing anecdotes. But I think it's something that needs further study because even though these are sick patients, if patients are getting the drug frontline or if good prognosis patients are getting it at any line, they could be on the drug for many months or longer. What about increased risk of infections? Do you believe that's a problem with these agents? I don't actually. I mean, I don't think the clinical trial data would bear that out, that there's actually an increased risk of clinically significant infections, and I've not really seen it in my own practice. Getting back again to this issue of this case that we had of intermediate risk, where you would start with sunitinib, Now, what about on disease progression? Would you use an mTOR inhibitor, and which one? I mean, I think in the frontline setting, we have fairly robust data now, and even though we don't yet have comparative data, we can use the data sets and figure out perhaps which therapy for which patient, 
you know, we think is appropriate. In the second line setting, I think it's very muddy. I don't think there's great data. There's no data comparing agents, and I don't think there's great data of what we have even with the single-arm trials. Obviously, Everolimus has the strongest level of evidence, but with a progression-free survival of four months, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the second-line agent of choice. I think the field is relatively wide open when it comes to use of second-line therapy. I'm more of a believer based on the clinical data that continued VEGF targeting is a better strategy. But I say that realizing that there really aren't yet comparative data to, to bear that out. Continued VEGF in terms of BEV or serafinib? Whatever. I know a lot of people talk about switching mechanisms, but I'm not aware of any clinical or even preclinical data that would say that switching mechanisms is better.